You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome, everyone, to Real Vision's The Interview. I'm Pedro da Costa, and it's my pleasure to introduce to you today David Andolfato. He is Senior Vice President at the St. Louis Federal Reserve Bank's Research Department, where he helps uh, his boss, uh, St. Louis Fed President James Bullard, figure out what's happening in the economy and what to do next with monetary policy. He's also a very broad-minded economic thinker, which is why I thought he'd be a great guest for Real Vision. So thank you so much for joining me, David. Well, thanks, Pedro. It's a pleasure to be here. So one of my jobs as a Fed reporter is to kind of translate Fed speak to to the rest of the world. Real Vision is a fairly sophisticated audience of uh, of investors, and uh, so we don't have to kind of translate terminology for for our viewers. But I want to get into uh, the Fed as an institution and how you operate, especially in a time of such deep uncertainty as we are now. Could you talk a little bit about? Uh, how you go about looking at the economy and collecting data, especially at a time where there's so little visibility uh, and so much uncertainty about the outlook? Well, uh, yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, as it turns out, I mean, I don't do it personally, but I have some very skilled colleagues who are uh, kind of gathering various uh, uh, data from data sources. Uh, Homebase, for example, uh, is, uh, is a real-time database on uh, employment activity and um, you know, thousands of establishments across the country. And my, my colleague, uh, Max Dvorkin, in fact, is, is, is uh, actively scouring that data source in real time, in fact. And it's actually, he uses that data to compare it to the actual CPS numbers that come out, you know, every once in a while. And he's been remarkably accurate in, uh, in, in the uh, forecasting what the CPS numbers are for employment, for example. So that's just one example kind of the, the innovation, <laughs> you know, the people doing what we have to do in this type of environment to get the real-time data. Absolutely. And so can you talk a little bit about how this second wave and the news about the second wave is affecting the way that you look at the economy and just the nervousness that seems to be resurfacing here in the United States as opposed to other countries that appear to have gotten the pandemic more under yeah. control? Yeah, it is. It is a little uh, disconcerting. I mean, one one, one thing that's uh, true about that data. Let me refer. Uh, and if anybody's interested, uh, please uh, you can email me or go to my Twitter site. I can uh, send you the link to the the, the data. Max very early on uh, uh, predicted a very very sharp uh, rebound in employment, uh, and in fact just nailed the CPS numbers just right on with uncanny accuracy. Uh, and so he's, his his real time uh, measurements have actually been pretty pretty accurate. And in and in light of that, it's a little disconcerting to see that the the index that he is measuring in real time is showing a definite slowing and in fact reversal uh, yeah, recently. And so this, of course, is is not inconsistent with what we know about how case counts and now even death rates are, are going up in the country. Um, I think it's pretty clear that, uh, you know, the, the actual shutdowns, the legislative shutdowns have some effect, but I, I, it's really clear that the major, major uh, economic drag is coming first from people voluntarily just wanting not to go out and to protect themselves. And of course, this is a health crisis and it is important for people to, to take the precautionary measures to protect themselves. And if, if employment has to go down in certain sectors, I mean, I guess we, we actually do want it to go down in some sense. I mean, conditional on the pandemic, we don't want to expose people to, to the ill effects of this, of this uh, uh, pandemic. And so, you know, I think that it's, 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 uh, it's up to fiscal policy in particular to help smooth the impact across the affected groups. But uh, in terms of your question, yeah, it seems like... Uh, you know, perhaps we're in for a kind of a W sort of uh, recovery, judging by how the data is coming in right now. Absolutely. There does. I feel like the word leveling off has been uh, the, 
<clears throat> the key word that's been uttered among mm. uh, so, some some Fed officials who have been speaking recently. Uh, in that context, I feel like anecdotal, as we were talking about, anecdotal data becomes so important when the hard data is 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 so fast moving. I'm just wondering before we get into the nitty gritty of policy that I do want to ask you about and the tools that the Fed has at its disposal in, in a crisis such as this. Are there any anecdotes that stand out to you as far as uh, either businesses getting creative in, in, in adapting to the crisis or in, in terms of just, you know, stories of businesses that were just so hard hit that they might not survive? What, what are you hearing from, from business contacts? What kind of stuff do you pick up from the district? Well, um, you know, just I think what everybody's kind of seeing out there is uh, what, 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 a, what a kind of I marvel at is like the the, um, the how this this COVID crisis has actually seems to have accelerated a number of trends that have already been in place. So, for example, um, you know the the uh, the internet has promoted uh, you know made the world a much smaller place, so that physical proximity isn't as important as it was in traditional economies, uh, and so. Um, you know, you, you hear anecdotes of uh, not necessarily in our district, but, you know, in New York, for example. I mean, landlords right now, for example, are, are offering steep discounts on rents, right? For I mean, there's still a lot of vacancies. Uh, there's a big question of what's, what's going to happen to commercial real estate, especially in light of the fact that um, even given the existing technology, Zoom, Skype and all this, that I think it's been a, a little bit of surprise uh, for a lot of businesses that they can actually function reasonably well, kind of with uh, with this physical distancing. I mean, it's not ideal. We're still early on in the sense that you know this has been imposed very quickly. But if you want to think about uh, how the technology is going to develop even further to enhance communications and kind of uh, uh, permit economic exchanges in the absence of physical proximity. I think that um, the, the changes are, are, are going to be profound, um, and um, it's, the, the, these changes I think were happening anyways. But what what is really interesting is how quickly they've been accelerated, and because the adjustments are going to have to be uh, made uh, in very short order, I think it's going to be very disruptive for that matter. But that's a great. It is interesting to. No, and it's a, it's kind of an imposed social experiment that I think yeah. <laughs> very few firms or institutions were willing to kind of, you know, go out there on a limb and be the first ones to do kind of an all remote experiment. But then when everybody had to do it, you got to test the functionality of it in real yeah. time. And it has, I think for, for, you know, for some institutions, maybe not all, but for some organizations, it's proven more functional than they expected. So that I think we're going to see a lot of that, of course. There's so much work that can't be done remotely in this economy that, you know, of course, True. that that exposes a lot of people to to direct contact or to unemployment. But nice. uh, but I do want to ask you about the Fed's toolkit, because, of course, you know, you're around for the last crisis. You've been at the Fed a long time and uh, and we didn't expect that the Fed would have to be reaching this far into its toolkit uh, this quickly. Uh, and of course, this was the ultimate exogenous shock, which is a pandemic. But I, I keep thinking about how far down the road of, uh, of the unison between monetary policy and fiscal policy we've come. And uh, I just wondering if you, could, if you could speak to that, about monetary and fiscal cooperation, whether it's, it's constructive, whether it's here to stay, or whether it's just an emergency measure that we're seeing for now. Well, uh, for sure, in, in emergencies, you tend to see agencies uh, cooperating uh, a lot more than they otherwise would. And so this is not unusual. Um, what you're witnessing right now, uh, um, you know, we, we understand we that the Fed and the Treasury and, and, and Congress as well understand, uh, you know, that this is this is this is something that needs to be de dealt with uh, in a cooperative and coordinated manner. Um, you know, this brings up a whole host of questions about, you know, what, what is the nature and the role of Fed independence? What does that mean in any case? I mean, why, why, why wouldn't the Fed, you know, in some sense, cooperate all the time with the Treasury? And indeed, you could even ask the question of why, why does the Fed even exist as an independent agency in the first place? Why don't we? We could, uh, Congress could fold the, the Fed into uh, the Treasury, for example, um, and, and uh so, 
I think that what one can uh, expect during the crisis is, you know, continued close collaboration and coordination between Fed and Treasury, as it should be the case. Um, going forward, uh, that might be a, a different situation. I don't know, because Congress has given the Fed certain mandates. Uh, and, and given those congressional mandates, the Fed really doesn't have much choice. There's some leeway of how to interpret them exactly. But given those mandates, I mean, the Fed will have to do its best to pursue them. And, and one of those mandates is, is price, price stability. So kind of like uh, as it's uh, uh, represented in our official 2% inflation target. So, so hypothetically, if you could ever imagine such a day, and I think very few people can because they haven't seen inflation for a very long time. But imagine, uh, I don't know, you know, uh, Maybe the global demand for the U.S. dollar and U.S. Treasury starts to wane a little bit and, you know, uh, deficits keep on uh, pumping out uh, U.S. nominal liabilities at a, at a continued rapid pace. You could very well imagine uh, a world where inflationary pressure does start to take off. And if that happens, uh, you know, and, and if we, we're, we're past the health crisis, and now suddenly the Fed is presented with uh, this a bit of a difficulty here because it has an inflation mandate. And the question is, is uh, what is it going to do about it? And, and we know central banks typically uh, try to raise interest rates aggressively to, to contain inflation. Uh, and, and this might uh, go against uh, kind of the desires of the administration and Congress. So, you know, I, I could imagine future scenarios where, where conflicts arise. And, and these conflicts could be reconciled and, uh, by, by Congress passing, um, you know, amendments to the Federal Reserve Act if they feel like the Fed should have different mandates. That's entirely fair. But uh, in terms of answering your question, yeah, during crisis, you can expect continued close collaboration. It's kind of easy for the Fed right now to help out because inflation is kind of nowhere to be seen. And, and we're just doing our part to help. Uh, the Treasury and Congress do what it needs to do during this crisis. Again, to that point, we the, the term helicopter money gets thrown around. How are, are we doing helicopter money? Are we close to helicopter money? I had, I, 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 let me phrase the question in the following sense. I had a discussion with uh, BIS chief economist Hyun Shin Sung <clears throat> this past week, and he his the annual report of the BIS frames the dividing line as as follows: basically, if the central banks stated intention is to support the economy and market function, then it is not doing monetary finance. But if you enter a, a period of fiscal dominance where the monetary institution becomes literally subordinate to fiscal goals, as sometimes happens in wartime, then you've crossed that line and that becomes dangerous for independence. So where do you think, how do you think of that? Well, um, I guess, I, again, I was going to say, when people say, are we doing helicopter money, it's kind of important to uh, first define what one means by the term. I would have defined it a bit differently than, uh, than, than the BIS uh, inter uh, definition. Fine. Um, in some sense, who cares what we call it? You know, I mean, I'm not really big on labels, to be quite honest. I mean, uh, the question is, is are we doing the right thing? In light of uh, the definition uh, you provided, I, I would say the latter. I suppose we're doing helicopter money by that by that definition. Um, we're we're supporting the treasury, and the treasury is is, is fulfilling uh, you know financing Congress's uh, desired spending programs, and Congress is a representation of people's preferences. Right, we voted for these people collectively, and so. Um, yeah. Uh, so in terms of the BIS definition, I would say it kind of maps into my earlier kind of discussion. Uh, during the crisis, it looks like we're doing helicopter money because we're collaborating, coordinating, and, and kind of uh, the fiscal authority is clearly taking the, the reins. By the way, this is embedded in, in large part in the Dodd-Frank Act, right, that, that altered the, the emergency 13-3 provisions of the Federal Reserve Act that prohibited the Fed from acting unilaterally in these uh, lending, emergency lending uh, programs. So and this seems we to have, are. This seems to have hurt the Fed's credibility in a way, right? Because I remember when that 13-3 that facility was changed during Dodd-Frank, there was a worry that, you know, the Fed would lose its capacity to react. But in fact, I feel like having that, you know, that 
the, the treasury funding backing kind of gives some credence to your ability. Oh, to yeah. I mean, I, I know, I think in, in, in Bernanke's memoir, I mean, he states quite clearly that he, he hated having 13-3 I mean, because he felt like the Fed being an unelected body. I mean, you're really treading on kind of shaky ground. What Dodd-Frank effectively did was provide, you know, support uh, by the Congress, congressional and treasury support. And, and it, it stipulated that, that the Fed would have to act in conjunction with the Treasury uh, during times of enacting these emergency measures. But hey, guess what? I mean, that's, that's what typically happens in an emergency anyways. But now it's kind of codified in the Federal Reserve Act. And I think this, you're right. I think it does lend additional credibility to, to, uh, to the Fed. Yeah, no. So when you mentioned that uh, we haven't seen inflation for a long time, I could hear the real vision viewers uh, cringing and, 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 and saying, look at asset prices. <laughs> the Fed is, all the, all the inflation is going into asset prices, right? As we talked yeah. a little bit off air, uh, I, I hear two criticisms from, from both from market folks uh, and from some of our viewers that, that the two things, the Fed's, Fed policy is distorting asset prices and therefore we can no longer read future economic signals into the bond market and other markets because the Fed is so deeply involved. And secondly, that by boosting asset prices, uh, by and sometimes not helping the economy as much, the Fed is 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 increasing already high inequality. Uh, what do you make of those two arguments? Uh, I mean, it's a tough question. Yeah, I mean, of course, you know, I'm very familiar with this uh, charge. The Fed is creating inflation. Uh, the, um, the official numbers that we're reporting aren't measuring true inflation. I mean, look at you know, somebody. <laughs> The price of the good I buy at the grocery store is going up very rapidly. How can you say that there's no inflation and stuff like that? Um, first of all, there's a difference between asset price inflation and, and, and inflation the way that we define it, that, that is meant in the Federal Reserve Act by price level stability. We look at a, a broad base of consumer goods and services, the PCE uh, price index, right? And in that index, you see uh, some prices going up and some prices going down. And on average, that that index uh, is is not is the, the price index is not growing very rapidly. So in that sense, um, you know, the Fed feels like it's it's fulfilling its its price stability mandate. There is no uh, mandate uh, to 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 stabilize asset prices. So I mean, maybe maybe your viewers feel like there should be uh, a mandate to, to do something about uh, asset prices. And I say, well, all the power to you. Uh, lobby your congressmen, lobby your representatives, and, and explain to them why you believe the Fed should have a mandate to, to do whatever you think is, is uh, appropriate in terms of asset prices. But we don't have a mandate for asset prices per se. Our mandate is to try to keep the price level uh, kind of growing at a, at a low and stable uh, manner to kind of promote a price level um, inflation certainty, and, and also to do whatever we can to promote uh, uh, the growth of employment, both in terms of you know the opportunities that people have, and also the wage growth. Um, Let me interrupt you for one second. I just yeah. wanted to ask you about because when you say you don't have an asset price mandate, a yeah. lot of folks you know say, look, every time stocks fall a certain amount, the Fed ends up moving. So the Fed is reacting to asset prices in that way. Oh yeah. And I, and I try to resort that the Fed is reacting to asset prices as it sees. Asset prices reflecting future economic activity, but the market people don't really buy that. Well, the market people have to think about you know this. I mean, it's true that suppose suppose the stock market starts to fall precipitously. Now, why might it do that? Well, guess what? Usually, it's because uh, some sort of bad news about the future uh, development of the economy has arrived. Well, guess what? The Fed does have a mandate to react to that bad news. The fact that the market came down in reaction to that bad news that what what do you want us to do about it you want us to raise interest rates i mean do you want us to cause the market to collapse in the face of even further you know it's just it's just not the right way to think about it it's true that um you know that, that the fed does uh, understand i mean the fomc does understand the role that our interest rates do play in in helping to prop up asset prices and oftentimes, uh, even Bernanke has come out explicitly and said part of the mechanism of lowering interest rate is it does, it does uh, uh, increase asset prices. But 
but but you know um assets are are held are widely held in people's pension funds as well you know it's 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 uh it's it's something that you'd expect the fed to help promote to keep the wealth kind of intact to help promote spending in the face of a sudden downturn you know it's it's not like the fed is is specifically trying to make a tesla stock go to you know, $1,000 or something like that. So I, I would argue that it, it's true that, you know, uh, despite the fact that there's is, there's no mandate for, for asset prices in, in the Fed's mandate, we do take a look, we, we do monitor asset prices, but we monitor all sorts of data. And that usually the actions we take that seem to benefit stocks, also those same actions tend to benefit the broader economy. So it's not surprising that the stocks would react positively to our interventions. That's that's how I would respond to those criticisms. And what about the inequality front? Um, the fact that asset prices are just helping rich people and everybody else is left out. Well, I mean, this is I find that argument very curious, you know, because uh, you do hear, um, you know, low, low, lowering interest rates right now do promote uh, asset prices. There's no doubt about it. And, and also like long bonds. So people who are holding long bonds have seen huge capital gains in their bond portfolios uh, and asset prices have been elevated. And people say, well, there you go. There's an example of the Fed, the Fed you know, promoting uh, the interest of the rich. Well, you know, I'm old enough to remember back in the 1980s when the argument was exactly reversed, when, when interest rates were very high. And I had the same cast of characters complaining that the high interest rates were promoting the rich because these rich bondholders were earning this very high interest rate on their bonds. And they were characterizing the high interest rate policy as basically basic income for the rich. So, um, you know, I don't know. I mean, what, if the Fed has high interest rates, we're helping the rich. If the Fed has low interest rates, we're helping the rich. It seems like there's really nothing the Fed can do. You're, you're always going to get criticized for helping the rich. My view is the Fed has an explicit set of mandates to try to do the best it can to help all Americans, uh, you know, the whole economy, the best it can, given its limited tools and given its congressional mandates. Anything the Fed does will have complicated redistributional effects. We understand this. But our hope is that if we try to do what's best for the whole economy, the best we can, that it's up to Congress to kind of patch up and, and, and enact the redistribution that is, is necessary to kind of fix you know, any kind of unintended consequences on the distribution front. And then the Fed, together with Congress, can together you know, have a, a sound, good monetary fiscal policy with an appropriate redistribution scheme. That's how it should work in principle. But, you know, what, what can the Fed do? Uh, it has a limited set of tools and a limited set of mandates. It, it doesn't, we do not have direct authority to fix redistribution issues. Now, speaking of tools, I wanted to ask you about the toolkit as it's been kind of redeployed, uh, echoing some of the 2008 uh you know, measures, but also with some innovations. And I would, you know, break it into two buckets. Of course, just monetary policy, the bringing back interest rates back to zero and, and, and QE kind of looming in the background. <clears throat> and then the credit facilities themselves. Uh, it, it seems like the initial react, the initial response was designed for a kind of a, a fairly short-lived phenomenon. I'm just wondering if you see if if this becomes a more prolonged recession, do you see the Fed as as kind of having to pass the baton to the fiscal authorities, or do you see it digging deep, deeper into its own toolkit? Well, again, um, you know, when digging deeper into our toolkit is not a unilateral action here. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, is this something we're doing already uh, together uh, with uh, with uh, Treasury approval? Uh, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin has to sign off on everything. So I, I kind of see if the, if the crisis continues to go on, uh, the Fed will continue to support the Treasury. I mean, I, I, I just, I, I can't imagine a world where that doesn't happen. It, it's what is in our mandate. You know, we were created by Congress to help serve the American people. And in crisis, you know, you just do what you have to do. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. 
Go to LipsonAds.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Post-health crises, it might be a little bit different. Uh, it's harder to predict what might happen there. But do you expect the credit, because the credit facilities, including the Main Street lending facility, which took a while to get off the ground, they have not gotten much use. Do you expect them to get increased use as time goes on if companies face greater risk of insolvency and they run out of the cushions that they initially had? You know, I, I, I don't know. I'm, I, I haven't um, paid too much attention to the exact workings of what's holding that facility back. But, um, you know, the, one would have to revisit the, the question. Are, are the commercial banks, are they serving their communities well? Enough. And if they're not, why not? Is there something that the Fed can do to help support these banks, uh, support their communities? Yeah. The Fed was not designed to, to service at a retail level. We don't have the capacity. We don't have the expertise. I mean, the central bank was really designed to be the bank for the banks. And so it's kind of layered in that way. So we really do expect uh, the private sector to, you know, to, 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 to do what they have to do. And then they're the ones, the community banks especially, are the ones that have the close relationship with the people in their community. They know who the good credit risks are. They know, you know, they know stuff. And so I would say this is going to be a big question for, you know, the regulatory regime. I mean, is it what's, what's if, if we think it's not functioning well, what's holding it back? Or is it the structure of the regulations? Do they need to be restructured? Is there anything that the Fed could do? to help support banks meet the needs of the community. Yeah. Um, I don't know what the answers to those questions are right now. And you know, you've done, I wanted to ask you a little bit about digital currencies. You've done a lot of work on crypto and our audience pays a lot of attention to that market. I'm yeah. wondering how much you think, and you know, it's come back into the fore because there was initially, there was a fear of cash exchanges, of course, in a pandemic, you know, digital exchanges become even more important. How do you see the role of technology as kind of developing in a way that, that could be beneficial to, to kind of breaking the, the chains that you described, like the, the, the lack of access to certain banks that some communities might have? Well, intermediation, I, I guess, would be the key. key yeah. Term. Well, that's, a, that's a, it's a, it's an interesting question. You know? So it, to, to some, some extent, we've been seeing, uh, you know, uh, technological progress in this area for centuries, in fact. I mean, <laughs> you know, with telephone or, you know, wires uh, um, and, and, uh, and uh, you know, the existing institutional structure, in fact, has evolved over time as technologies have changed uh, over time, facilitating communication, secure communication. There's been a lot of advances in cryptography to enhance the security of these communications. Uh, because at the end of the day, what we're talking about is data, is information, how to store it, how to manage it, how to keep it safe, how to keep it accessible, um, and how to make sure it's not counterfeited or stolen. So as, as the innovations in this space, you know, as innovations in, in you know, communications technology, you know, the internet was huge for this, you know, uh, uh, as these innovations continue to, to, to come forth, I do expect that... Uh, Perhaps the conventional kind of, you know, local bank dealing with people in the local proximity uh, might not be as important as it was in the past. Um, I have mixed feelings about that, to be quite honest, because, <laughs> I, you know, we, we see this a lot on the consumer side, the consumer loans, the so-called commoditization of consumer loans. And, and you know, yeah, it can be cheaper, it can serve a constituency, but on the other hand, there's something missing. You know, I mean, I remember when my father came to, uh, he immigrated from Italy as an immigrant uh, in Vancouver, and he needed a loan to kind of build a house, you know, and, and, and he couldn't get it. But uh, he, he went to the credit uh, office manager and, and went to his office and said, by golly, I need this loan. Why don't you come down and see what I'm doing and, and, and I'll show you. And, and the, the credit officer actually came to, to the site on the weekend in person. To take a look at my dad working away on a side job, by the way, so he was working during the day as a construction worker, building the house at night. <laughs> and, and he came and he saw, and he says, you know what? I'm giving you this extra money for what you need. Cause I mean, I mean, how are you going to do that on a computer? No, I mean, <laughs> yeah, there's no personal goal. There's no 
<laughs> don't visit like that with the online algorithm, right? The online algorithm is not going to show up to your house. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think that uh, never underestimate the sophistication that, that can be built into these things. But, you know, I'm of two minds of this thing. But the, to answer your question, yeah, I think that these innovations, you know, could potentially lead to uh, access to credit where it might not otherwise be available. But I, I'd push back a little bit here because I want to caution that if you see that credit is, not, is being denied to a particular constituency for no obvious reason, you have to ask yourself, I mean, this is crazy. Why wouldn't a bank want to make money? Oftentimes, the answer is a regulatory restriction. And, and no amount of technology is going to fix a regulatory restriction. Oftentimes, people confuse the benefits of a technology only because it, it circumvents the existing regulatory restriction. Yeah. But if that was the restriction, if, if that was the problem, why not lift the restriction to begin with? So that's something we should consider as well. Thanks for that. So I want to ask you about a, a broader topic. That So just to give you some context, uh, Real Vision is just uh, published an interview with Stephanie Kelton about her new book. And uh, it's amazing how much attention MMT is getting modern monetary theory, for those who don't know, is getting in the public domain these days, considering that when I first met its proponents back during the crisis, they were having, they were at the kind of, at the side panel at the AEA, you know, they weren't invited <laughs> to the big chair yet. And now, of course, Stephanie Kelton is like a, a nationally known figure. But I know that you're an economist at the Fed who's paid attention to this stuff for a long time. And, and to your point about not really caring about labels, that's kind of what I where I take interest in MMT is they've helped me think about the economy in broader ways. And for that, I thank them. But uh, I just wonder what your take is on MMT and how, you know, what, what they bring to the table and uh, how you, how they help you think about deficits essentially. Yeah. You know, so uh, for a long time, I've been uh, corresponding with proponents of MMT, just, just out of uh, intellectual curiosity. In fact, I, I didn't even know, I didn't treat them any different than anyone else. Uh, they, they have a set of ideas, and I was interested to communicate and uh, learn about what these ideas were. Uh, so I, but everything I have, uh, I'm about to say now, I, I, I should uh, provide the caveat that I'm not an expert necessarily. And I, in fact, I don't think many MMTers are even experts, to be quite honest. I mean, it's such a broad kind of not perfectly well-defined school of thought. So sure, there's disagreement within the, within the school <laughs> yeah. as to how to define <laughs> Yeah. But, you know, broadly speaking, uh, you know, I'm kind of settling now after years of kind of discussing things with them, I'm settling in on what they're about. But, I mean, I've, I have a great deal of respect for, for proponents in MMT because I think that, uh, you know, I mean, my view, they, they, they demonstrate, you know, a, they have a superior kind of knowledge of the institutional setup. They, they have a very, very good understanding of operation, of how money markets just function at the operational level. Traditionally, macroeconomists like myself, you know, we don't care about the, the circulatory system, you know. I mean, we, it functions. We kind of, we just kind of take it as given that it functions. And of course, that's a perfectly fine thing to do until you get a heart attack or something that you're, that you're very worried about the details of how these things might malfunction. So they're very good at understanding the operational details. They're very good at understanding the institutional setup. They're uh, very good at describing how things work. Um, and they have a, tend to have a very broad and deep uh, knowledge of economic history, which I think is just indispensable for, for policymakers. So I learned a lot from them and I like talking to them. Uh, having said that, I mean, their views on the deficit and debt, um, you know, I, 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 they, they don't really uh, follow kind of standard um, or conventional, this is not a criticism, this is just a description, they don't really follow kind of the standard modern macroeconomic uh, rules, uh, that's why they're heterodox, of writing down models explicitly in terms of mathematical things that is a, is a language that, that is it's basically the lingua franca of uh, macroeconomic theories yeah. is this mathematical apparatus. Um, I've, I've tried to translate uh, some of their ideas and propositions into the language that I'm familiar with. And what I discovered is a lot of the propositions that MMTers make are, are I can locate them in, in, the, in the models and theories that I work with. 
they and the models I work with are not necessarily conventional in the sense of the way the the Fed uh, the New Keynesian model, but I'm within. I th I think I'm within kind of what you'd call, consider a pretty mainstream, you know, uh, type of branch of of uh, economic theory. So, to my view, I can actually locate a lot of their propositions in my 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 theory. So I think a lot of the things that they say are correct, conditional on, on a number of things holding true. And so I have a lot of sympathy for what they say because I think a lot of what they say is actually correct. So I have a lot of sympathy for the, one of the key elements of their program is ABBA Learner's Functional Finance, for example. I think it makes a lot of sense. Who cares about the deficit? Who cares about the debt? We have to focus on whether or not the government is allocating its expenditures in a socially productive manner. I mean, uh, if, if, and it's a big if by the ways, <laughs> If the government is doing that, I mean, how you finance it is, is virtually irrelevant. Uh, there's a lot of truth and power to that state. Especially for a government with a reserve currency, right? I mean, it doesn't apply globally, I assume. But well, uh, it would, I, I would say it would apply to all governments uh, because if a, if a government is actually uh, uh, allocating its, its resources in a socially productive manner, even, even if you don't have a reserve currency, you should be able to raise the funds to, to finance these socially productive. Uh, but, but to your point, exactly. And if you have a global reserve currency, it just makes it so much easier. So it's not really something to worry about. Uh, they, the, the caveat, of course, that they make, and they're explicit about this, is it's not a, a proposal to just print money willy-nilly. Uh, their, their claim is that we print money anyway, so I mean, it's, it's not the point. The point is, is um, um, you know, in terms of um, the, the big critique that you often hear coming against this, this idea is inflation. But I mean, this is, it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not really a legitimate uh, critique if you condition, if you understand that the important conditioning statement is that the government is going to do socially and economically responsible spending, that's the the that's the weak part. Yeah. But conditional on that, you don't have to worry about inflation. You don't have to worry about the debt. You don't have to worry about it. So people who are attacking MMT on the basis of inflation or the debt or interest expense or debt crisis are just off the mark. Where you should attack them is in that important conditioning statement. If you, if you can really truly believe that the uh, the government will uh, manage the economy in a in a socially productive manner. No, that's that's really interesting. Can you? That's I feel like uh, macroeconomic shackles itself often by being so narrowly tied to its uh, kind of theology. You know, its theology of 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 original tablets. And not being willing to look at other social sciences in a, in a more cooperative yeah. way, and I I learned a little bit about that when I, I worked with uh, some economists at the Economic Policy Institute who are focused on race. You know, a lot of race focused economists are told that they're they're really just sociologists or studying cultural phenomena because racism can't be modeled, therefore it quote unquote cannot exist. And that, of course, that's infuriating to to most people who you know, see racism as actually existing very clearly. Can you talk about how, uh, you know, economics can enrich itself by, by looking at, say, at things like history and other subject matters? Oh, oh boy. She's uh, where, to, where to even begin. Um, first of all, uh, so I don't, I don't explicitly work in these areas, uh, but um, in, in terms of, uh, that is to say, the race uh, sure. issues, but... Uh, in terms of your, your, your broader point of uh, economists reaching out to other social sciences, I think that, um, you know, this is kind of indispensable, really. I mean, we, it's, you know, I guess, I, I guess I'm guilty of this as well, uh, although, um, you know, I do tend to talk to economists. <laughs> I, mean, I, I have written papers, for example, on self-esteem, you know, which is something I've, I have read literature in the psychology area. If you can go and you can go and look at my paper and I've written something on self-esteem. So I, I do, I do, you know, I kind of, uh, in fairness to me, I guess, I, I have practiced a little bit of what I preach. I have explored other uh, social sciences and see what they have to offer to uh, try to understand certain phenomena. Uh, um, probably more, more of us could probably do more of that. But, you know, I think that it's probably, 
true of all the social sciences. You know, I, I'm not so sure that historians or, or, or people in, in psychology or political science uh, necessarily reach out to economists either. Um, maybe this is a good time for all of us to kind of get together and say, hey, you know what? Uh, we're, in, we're social scientists. And in fact, you know, when I used to teach, I used to teach my students, I say, what distinguishes economics from the other social sciences? And, and I, I said, you know what, it's, it's really not the questions that are being asked. We're all asking the same questions. And they're all fundamentally about social, understanding social interactions. Um, you know, sociologists have a particular way of going about addressing or interpreting phenomena. Um, anthropologists have a different way. Uh, political scientists have a different way. Economists have a different way. And, and you can kind of, re I'll reference you to my lecture notes. I actually teach my students, you know, um, that the difference between the social sciences is really our methodology, kind of the way we go about trying to understand and interpret the world. And you know what? I think if looking at the same phenomenon from different perspectives is, is kind of probably a good idea. I mean, you know, the, the, uh, the parable of the blind man and the elephant kind of comes to mind. <laughs> I think collectively, you know, the blind men, if they, if they could measure the elephant, you know, the nose, the trunk, the, or the ears, I sh should say, the, the nose, the trunk, I should say, and, and make a, a, a submit their reports to a collective agency and, and consolidate what they, the measurements that the social sciences as a whole could do a lot better. That's a great point. And uh, especially during a pandemic where as the pandemic first started kicking in, I started calling it, you know, every economist I would call would say it really depends on what the epidemiologists say. I said, you know, at one point I started just calling epidemiologists. And in fact, I interviewed a couple of them on, on this very show. So, uh, you know, it's not even just social sciences. It's really just a, a cross cooperative effort, period. Um, I, I know that you think about the world economy and not just the, the US economy. And I was wondering in this period of uncertainty, how you're seeing you know, global economic developments affecting us and what parts of the world uh, you've been paying attention to. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Well, yeah, you know, I, I do go to the Financial Times coronavirus kind of tracker and, you know, I take a look at how the, the virus uh, is, is kind of developing across regions of the world as, as well as the United States. And I, I, I do worry, I actually worried very early on about the impact that this was likely to have in, in, in emerging markets, in fact, because I said, oh, my God, I mean, it's one thing for it to hit, uh, you know, relatively well-developed economies with, you know, relatively well-developed hospital systems. Uh, the, the resources, the doctors, the nurses, the healthcare professionals to help deal with the health crisis. What's going to happen uh, in the rest of the world? Um, and, 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 and indeed, one does see uh, some troubling uh, statistics, right? I mean, you do see, you know, places in Mexico, Latin America, some regions of Africa and, and Asia, you know, Iran, very, very, very um, worrisome uh, developments. I mean, it's just... Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's like so sad to even think about it. it really is. Uh, I, I, Brazil, I, so I can, I can tell you yeah. firsthand, it's we're, we're kind of competing for which country is doing the work. Yeah, I mean, in terms of that, I mean, I, 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 in my head, I always think about what is the ideal thing to do. I mean, I, I always saw a country like the United States, you know, the, 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 the ones that are Canada, the ones that are better off should should be should have handled the the, the health crisis uh, very much sooner domestically and did everything we could to kind of help the global community combat was what was going to be uh, you know it's kind of the same thing as you know they instruct you uh, on the airplane in case of emergency to attach your own mask before attaching that to the child you know get your house in order as quickly as possible and do whatever you can to help the the global community that pr might not be in a position to to, to react. Uh, I, you know, I don't see this happening so much, uh, but, and I, 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 and the measurements coming in are hard to, um, 
hard to assess. I noticed I noticed a little while ago Justin Wolfers plotted some uh, data, just uh, very preliminary and provisional, I guess. But surprisingly, the correlation that he that I saw was that the 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 the, the, the mortality rates in the lesser developed world seem to be less lower than in the developed world. Uh, I don't know if this is correct, by the way. So this is just what I saw. Uh, but 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 that that piece of data gave me some hope that perhaps I don't know. I'm thinking perhaps uh, people in the in in lesser developed countries are, are fitter. Perhaps they're more they're more active. Maybe they're physically more capable. Of, or the uh, I mean the age demographic certainly would be the age. Uh, they're much. They tend to be much younger as well. Um, but in terms of you know, uh, so my first thought is in terms of the humanitarian crisis, the health crisis, and what can be done about it. That, of course, spills over into economic considerations, that kind of a feedback into the United States and at the Fed. And, and, the, and the way that that happens is, you know, if, if, if these, these global economies, these emerging markets are, are suffering, uh, it's just natural that investors are going to like want to stay away from investing in, in these economies. And, and typically, you know, what you see is kind of a, a flight to safety, a global flight to safety. And, and where do you go? <laughs> You go to the U.S. Treasury. You know what does that imply about interest rates? You know interest rates, further downward pressure, uh, U.S. dollar appreciation, disinflationary pressure. What does it imply about the Fed Treasury? Uh, uh, you know, well, it gives us a lot more uh, fiscal space. The Fed doesn't have to worry about inflation as much as it would otherwise. I mean, these are kind of just the cold calculus, but. To me, that's just incidental. I mean, the, the, it's the humanitarian crisis uh, that needs to be dealt with. No, I I agree with you. It's kind of it becomes harder and harder to talk about monetary policy when you have a, a global pandemic causing so many deaths. So I, I appreciate your your human focus um, very much. So, um, what other things are you thinking about in terms of of kind of post pandemic trends? And 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 what I mean is. When you have a, glo- a shock that's this global and, and this structural, I never kind of understood the word structural in such a visceral way as I do now. Usually I think of the word <laughs> structural as kind of a fuzzy word that economists use to get away from difficult explanations. But like when, you under- when, when restaurants are no longer viable, that's a structural shift, right? Um, and so, you know, what kind of structural changes are you expecting and, um, how fast can the economy get back to its to its you know to its old clip given that kind yeah. of structural hit? It's it's fascinating, you know, to see this. Um, you know, I think about the the nature of this shock. I mean, it's really quite remarkable. I I I look back. Uh, it leads me to look back in time. I, I and I ask myself, when was the last time the United States was really afflicted by something so great? And and I think it probably you know the Second World War maybe. Uh, and you know, my as I mentioned, my 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 father and mother are both from Italy. They both grew up in wartime Italy. So I've had firsthand accounts for what true chaos <laughs> looks like. Uh, you know, it really does give one a different uh, a perspective on on kind of just the incredible amount of wealth and material prosperity that the United States and other countries have been able to generate in the post World War II era. And, and as I look back over the over the data and, and the, the development of, of, of these economies, I'm struck at, you know, how incredibly lucky we've been as well. You know, there's really, I mean, we had the Korean War, I mean, the Vietnam War, and don't get me wrong, we've had our little, you know, OPEC oil crisis, but come on. These things kind of pale in comparison to kind of what, you know, my grandparents had to go through in the Great Depression or, or you know, <laughs> the Second World War. Uh, or even my parents. Um, and so it, the one thing that strikes me is, boy, we've been kind of lucky, is post-World War II, uh, the transition from the Second World War has just been this remarkable kind of period of prosperity. Now now we got hit by a shock. Now let's see how resilient we are and how, uh, how we're going to react to it. Um, the other thing is, um, what I think is I'm tying into something I said earlier, is I think what the shock has done is it has uh, accelerated a number of trends that have already been in place. So uh, I'm kind of hard pressed to think of any trends it's reversed. Maybe some of your viewers can uh, offer comments there. But um, in terms of accelerating, yeah, the, the, the work at home, for example, 
you made a very good point, I think, is that what this shock has done is uh, actually led to a coordinated effort in this experiment, something that wouldn't have happened otherwise. That would have happened in bits and pieces and progressed uh, relatively slowly. I think it would have happened, you know, uh, maybe in 10 or 20 years, but it's greatly accelerated this this experiment. And it looks like it's, it's, kind of going to work. So I I don't see us going back to where we were before just because we were on a a trend that was changing anyways. But we, I I think what it has done is accelerated a a trend that has been in place. And and I think, as I mentioned earlier, the speed of the adjustment is, is what is potentially troubling because we can handle slow adjustments. I mean, they're disruptive, but they're relatively manageable. We're talking about a pretty significant shock here. What's going to happen to commercial real estate in New York? Our businesses, why do they want to rent in New York downtown? Or at least as much uh, retail spaces, uh, commercial spaces they wanted before. Um, why do people want to live downtown again? I mean, I mean, there's a lot of people around. You might get infected. I mean, I can work from... an attraction, right? I mean, spending a night in New York was a really fun thing. And now it's a, kind of a scary thing. You, but I mean, it goes beyond this too. And uh, a lot of pension funds or REITs are loaded up in real estate investment trusts. I mean, uh, what, what's this going to do to the, the pension funds? I mean, uh, you know, the, you can go down the, the, these shocks are, it's a big shock. It's reverberating through all parts of the economy, changing the way we interact, changing the way we behave. Um, you know, at the end of the day, we're going to cope. I mean, we're going to adapt. Uh, we, we as, as a society, have coped with even much larger shocks, you know, the Great Depression, uh, the, the 1918 pandemic, um, uh, the Second World War. So, so I have no doubt that we'll, we'll as, a, as a community, uh, be able to, to adapt. I just, I just hope that, uh, that the, com- the broader community understands that we have to help um, I think it's in the interest of the community as a whole, that is the community of the United States, to help those people that have been disproportionately affected by these changes. Because they've, first of all, it's not anybody's fault uh, and it happens so rapidly. And, and, and that I think you know, it just makes sense to kind of help the, uh, the, those disproportionately affected to, to adjust, to make the adjustment to the new normal. Absolutely, and when you talk about you know, retraining workforces, uh, you, you look at the claims numbers that we've had recently, and it's just mm-hmm. kind of mind boggling uh, yeah. how, how quickly it has gone up. So anyway, I think that's, we're going to leave it there. But thank you so much, David. That was super helpful. And uh, I really appreciate it. Uh, you were very open and, and thoughtful. And uh, I thank you again for your time. Thank you so much, Pedro. You gave me a lot of good ideas, too. So I do appreciate it, too. Wonderful. Thank you. Cheers. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.